Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Present Process Podcast, where we talk about plays from playwrights that you may or may not have heard of and illuminate the process of writing. I'm your host, Daniel, and this week we're talking to Marco Antonio Rodriguez about his play, Bloom. As always, if you have a new play exchange profile, I highly recommend you go and give this play a read before listening. This episode may contain strong language and other adult themes, and you can find an in-depth content warning in the description. Thanks for listening. Okay, and we're here with uh, Marco Antonio Rodriguez. We're going to talk about your play, Bloom. Uh, and I'm really excited to get there. Uh, it's a great play. But first, I really just want to start talking about you, the playwright. Uh, and so I'm wondering, who are you? Like, uh, where do you come from? What do you do? And sort of what theater do you typically work with? Well, thank you for inviting me, Daniel. I'm truly, truly grateful. And who am I? Who am I? <laughs> I think that's the eternal question, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, uh, I'm Marco Antonio Rodriguez. I was born in New York City, but I was sent to live in the Dominican Republic when I was a baby. So my first language is Spanish. When I came back from the Dominican Republic, my mother was having economic hardships. So she sent me, she's a single parent raising uh, me, and she sort of came at a place where she had an economic hardship. She sent me to live with my aunt when I was about two and a half. And I came back around five, five and a half. And so I had to learn English watching Sesame Street, The Electric Company. Of course, at that age, we are sponges. So I learned pretty quickly. But I have a, I still have a slight accent, especially after a few tequilas. Um, <laughs> it still comes out. But um, I'm bilingual writer, uh, playwright, screenwriter, television writer. I'm also an actor. I'm a director, I've produced, I've pretty much done it all from mopping floors to working with folks who have gone on to Broadway and all that kind of fun stuff. Done television shows as an actor and also as a voiceover artist. Um, I do a bunch of different things for commercials and animation. So I'm kind of a, uh, a jack of all trades in the business, which is a good thing um, to be in this business. Love the business, the good and the bad the celebrations and the frustrations, all the Asians of the business, I, I truly enjoy. Um, and when I was five years old, I almost died. I almost drowned. This is right before I came back from the Dominican Republic. I almost drowned at a beach while living there. And I was rescued uh, by this gorgeous lifeguard. And that's when, <laughs> something, yeah, that's when something happened. That's the first time I, I kind of went, oh, interesting. But then I looked over at my mother who was there and her judging Catholic eyes and <laughs> thought, oh, interesting. And that's kind of what sparked, uh, inspired me to, as I got older, write about the complex relationships between parents and their children, specifically between mothers and their children. Um, from a, uh, not only from a queer Caribbean and Caribbean American perspective, but also the, a human general perspective uh, with a lot of heart humor um and that's kind of what i do in pretty much a lot of my work is i focus on the as i did in bloom mm -hmm. these complex relationships between parents and their children that are not black and white that are sort of gray and complex and human and 
not all I'm the parent and you're the child. Sometimes the parent is the child, um, so to speak. And that's sort of what I do. Uh, and I do it with, like I said, heart and humor. Perfect. I love that. Uh, and I really appreciate uh, what you're saying about right approaching that with the black and white perspective is I feel like a lot of times with plays that I read, uh, it can feel a little bit one sided, right, that there's like a message that people are trying to send, they're trying to say, this yeah. is what my play means to you. Uh, when I think, right, if you just present a a really complex relationship, that's good enough. Like, right. That's, we can, we can take all we need from that uh, and really enjoy it uh, at the we same forget, time. We forget that we're human. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the beauty of us is our humanity and our humanity is not black and white. Our humanity is gray. Mm -hmm. There are many sort of different layers to who we are and not all of them are great. Not all of them are bad. Um, oh, I also write in different genres. I write in comedy and horror and fantasy and drama and dramedy. I've written Westerns. Um, so, you know, historical fiction, I do adaptations as well. And we'll talk about that a bit later. Um, so I sort of have as a writer, um, uh, uh, and I guess growing up in New York, it's just sort of happened in this melting pot, uh, sort of am able to navigate different genres. Um, fairly well <laughs> toot, toot. Just my <laughs> no i definitely feel that reading bloom uh so let's let's talk about bloom a little bit uh yeah let's so, talk about bloom let's talk about bloom uh what sort of broadly speaking would you say this play is about i mean you already mentioned that it's about this relationship between yeah. um a son and his mother uh but or even just a child and their mother um mm -hmm. uh, how like even further than that how would you broadly describe it I believe, I feel that Bloom is a, a mother and child's journey return to love. So their return to love. When the play starts, they have left. There's no love there. There's only uh, uh, this sort of uh, disdain and disgust for each other and judgment of each other. Um, it's not just her to him, him to her as well. Um, and it's, we watch in real time, their journey, their return to love. So that's what I feel Bloom is really about, a return to love. Yeah, I really, I I really sense that right when I was reading the play is that it's about, um, right the the primary action is this character's trying to, or these two characters trying to cope with the situation that they're in. Right, they're trying to navigate the complex sort of the outside. Yeah, exactly. Coming the into the, the outside influences, the attacks outside beyond beyond their relationship, outside of their relationship, right. is what they're navigating. And, and and each navigates it in different ways, as, as you read. Right. And so, and through that navigation, right, the, I think the meaning comes through, which is like what you said about uh, returning to love is they're trying to um, figure out how to love each other again, um, or like find it again in a way, because there's that huge rift between them. Was there sort of a personal or global event that you experienced that led you to the topic of the play or the central concept? Well, the, the, actually, it was inspired by my family because it's so divided. On my father's side, we have Trumpers. And on my mother's side, everybody is more on the Democrats. So there's sort of a split uh, divide that's very judgmental, very critical of each other. Uh, uh, and that was part of it. And the idea that someone, someone or a government could influence uh, the minds of people who in my eyes should know better um 
but nevertheless, they follow a doctrine rather than their own independent thinking or even their own hearts, whether it's a religious doctrine or a political one. And then, so that was like, I need to write something about this because this is driving me crazy. You know, even in the Dominican Republic, there are those on my mother's side who were pro Trujillo, which was a dictator. So go figure. On my mother's side, they're not Trumpers. Um, they're more in the Democratic. But there are a lot of supporters of the Trujillo regime from the 30s, 40s, and 50s, which was a major dictator who ruled in the Dominican Republic for over 30 plus, 32 years, I think it was. On my dad's side, they're more Trumpers and are completely anti-Trujillo because my uncle was murdered by the Trujillo regime for opposing it. So it's like this sort of wild complexities of thought in two different families. Um, and I thought I gotta explore this. And then I came across an article about Chechnya, which is a Russian territory um, and the violation of the LGBT, the human rights period, but also but particularly being targeting the LGBTQ plus, the LGBTQIA plus community uh, with entrapment. So basically luring them into traps and then kidnapping them, taking them, torturing them and forcing them to reveal other folks who they, you know, who else in, in, do you know in your community? Give me names um, or you will be tortured until you do. And also then handing them over to their families to take care of them because they were sort of deemed the shame of the nation. And by taking care is either the family handles it or the, the extreme measure would be, which is what happened in some cases, is some families would kill the, the person, mostly men um, uh, are the ones who were being taken, not were, are still being taken. So the, mm. the press was sort of shut down on it, has not spoken much about it. This has started happening. This was being reported on in 2007, 2008, and nobody has really heard much about it. Um, and a lot of folks who in Chechnya have fled um, from Chechnya to Russia and then from Russia through to other countries by sort of uh, in the underground way, no, by sort of these groups that have formed underground to help. And I thought, well, this is interesting to me. What would compel a, a mother or a father? I read this one story of, uh, I believe it was the, the uncle who took the guy, the, 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 the mother and the father couldn't do it. So he took his nephew to the back yard, shot him and buried him in the backyard because the, the guy, the gentleman would not give, would not give in with, this is who I am and I can't change who I am. So of course that was going to bring the family problems because should he had been caught again, it would have been on the family. The blame would have been placed on the family the responsibility would have been put on the family. So he was shot in the backyard and buried in the backyard. And apparently they're either killed in prison or killed by their own family members. And I just thought, what would compel a family member to be so caught up in the politics of their country that they forget that this is their own flesh and blood and just do something in the name, <clears throat> in the name of a political philosophy or a political thinking? And I remember, of course, Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. um, and then Trump happened. So, um, and this is, so this is before Trump was even running for president that I started working on this play. Mm -hmm. So when Trump announced he was running for president, I was like, okay. And I, we know Trump very well in New York City. He's very much a staple of New York. We all hate him. <laughs> well, let me not generalize. A big portion of the New York population does not like him. 
for all that he has done and capitalistic ways and on steroids um, and that sort of thing. Um, I thought, okay, he wins the election and then he starts to sort of do these things in that government that were not that far away, uh, not so separate, not so sort of distant from what could happen here. And I thought our democracy is so fragile. Um, it's just a moment away from, for it, from it being taken from us. And then January 6th happened. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and that happened actually after Bloom, I believe. I'm not good with timetables, but um, so it's sort of all of that inspired uh, prior to Trump being president, stuff was going on with my family already. Me coming across this articles about Chechnya, mm -hmm. uh, territory of Russia, and what was the violations of human rights, uh, particularly with LGBTQIA plus uh, community. Um, and then what was going on in our own country politically. And I just, but I wanted it, I didn't want it to overload it with the politics. I really wanted to make sure that it was there, but it wasn't overtaking the play, but it was really focusing on these two human beings who just don't understand each other and their journey towards not acceptance, but certainly an understanding of, but particularly a return to the love that they have for each other. After hearing you explain that, that all like really shines through in the play, I think um, it has this sort of dystopic feel to it without it being really in your face, like a lot of um, like you say, like sort of activist centric plays would where it's like, oh, this is horrible. And you uh, must do this and you must think this way. Exactly. Rah, rah, rah. Waiting for lefty, rah, 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 you know? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it. I think that all comes from that, right? It doesn't, the world you have doesn't, doesn't feel completely separated from the one that we have, but also it's just far enough away where it's a little bit frightening, right? Where yeah. it's like, yeah, we're right you know, on the cusp of it, right? Where you could see it happening in 10 years that this could be a reality, but, uh, or I mean, it is a reality and places not here right well no but hang on a second we, they just reversed roe versus way that's true roe versus Wade. so we're not that far away you know what's interesting about this play is when i've when i've submitted and sent it out and people always go oh we love this play but the concept of it is just a bit far-fetched and i always go actually let me share with you the articles <laughs> link 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 and they're like what they had no idea this was really going on. I think as Americans, we're very isolated. We live sort of in a bubble. Mm -hmm. uh, most Americans don't travel that much. So even those who have passports. And so we sort of kind of go, oh, well, that's over there. That's happening over there. That's one of the reasons I wanted to make sure I kept it focused on the humanity and not the politics. Because when you focus on politics, it's very easy to separate yourself from it. And go, oh, well, that's just happening in this made up country, right? Because we never say a country or a city mm -hmm. or a town. Uh, oh, that's just, oh, that's just not us. That's just not us. But if you keep it human, that is us. You know, that is the mother, the son, the, the father, the uncle that that has this sort of mind frame. And it's not just about, oh, well, she's an evil mom because she's anti-LGBTQ. No, there's more to her than that. Mm -hmm. That's one of the main reasons I did keep it very human as opposed to drowning in the activism of it or the politics of it. Well, right, because if you had like centered it in Chechnya, right, and you had said this is a play about that, right, you would have that thing where everyone says, oh, it's happening in Chechnya, which is across the pond, right? Mm -hmm. It's not in our backyard. Mm -hmm. um, 
But right, like as you said, uh, it's a question of whether or not we get there. And I think that's why plays like this are important is, oddly enough, the plays that aren't activist plays are the ones that I think actually enlighten an issue more because, right, like you said, uh, you're focused more on, well, this is how it feels personally, right? Like this is the personal ramifications of this sort of world. So why would you want to live here, right? Exactly. Um, Take a look. Um, I'm jumping the gun with a question you have for later, but Take uh, one of the, a play that I just just saw that is does that beautifully, although it kind of plays with structure and it doesn't quite follow traditional structure. It's called Downstate. I believe I'm terrible with names, Daniel. So bear with me. I believe his the playwright is Bruce Norris. Um, uh, who did uh Clyburn um, Park? Yes, thank you. Who won the Pulitzer for Clyburn Park? I believe. Uh-huh. But Downstate is a play that doesn't apologize and doesn't argue for. It's just presenting these human beings. Um, and that's an interesting piece of work that is very provocative, unapologetic. You will be, it stay, will stay with you. It doesn't quite follow a traditional structure. And here's the rising action and the inciting mm-hmm. incident and the climax. And the, it doesn't do it, really do any of that. But what it does, Bloom does that a little bit more, I think, traditionally. But, 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 but what this one, what Downstate does so beautifully is it presents, it introduces these human beings to us. They're not just pedophiles. These are human beings, which for many people is hard to digest. But that's one play that I would strongly recommend. If you're in New York, see it. Come to New York to see it. But this will be one that will be studied. I I lo- like that. That's what I'm always looking for in new plays is like which which ones have the developing power to change sort of the um like you said like the structure like especially those structural elements where it's like how are we actually writing these plays and what are the new ways that we're going to communicate it right i think he's destroying structure but you'll see when you see it or read it right it doesn't quite follow the ibsen the henrik ibsen um, (laughs) exactly dramatic structure but it but it is it it, is it's more of a conversation but anyway uh downstate perfect i love that right right now it's at playwrights horizons by the time this airs um, it will be done. But um, if you can find it somewhere in regional, I'm sure it'll have some regional productions. It's a, whew, it is a punch to your gut. Um, so I am curious to see how many theaters will actually want to do it. Um, but, um, oh, if you can access it once it's published it, I highly recommend you, you, you take a look at it. It's not a perfect play, but it's definitely one for the books. Well, right. I think, I think the plays that really push the boundaries a little bit are rarely these like perfect forms of theater right because they're they're trying something new they're trying to break something and when you do that it's not not everything about it is going to be all clean uh and i really i think that's kind of a new era or maybe it's new to me but i've been reading a lot of plays that don't apologize as much where they're not where especially when you're dealing with race where it's like no we're not gonna have like these moments where these characters get redemption it's just going to yeah. be like now like this is the reality of the play we're not going to apologize for it we're going to put these sort of stereotypes and beliefs on full display so everybody can understand them right instead of just kind of going around them to make sure that everyone's comfortable that's uh, what i did with bloom as well yeah yeah i'm not right exactly julia never apologizes uh, neither does rome these uh, by the end it's not about apologies it's about oh We've forgotten our love for each other, mm-hmm. and now we're back. 
I don't know what's going to happen from from today on, but I do know that I have forgotten who I am and who you are and what we are is love. Mm -hmm. Okay, so moving on with Bloom, you've sort of talked a little bit about genre, but I'm sort of curious how you would describe the genre of Bloom. I, I sort of have a feeling for how you might answer this, and it's sort of a semi-rhetorical question a little bit, but I'm just curious how you like think about your play in that way. So given what you and I just shared about Bloom, people are <laughs> going to be like, what? But um, it's a drama with comedic elements. Um, I would actually, early on in the process, I called it a dark comedy. Um, but it's really more of a drama with comedic elements. Um, uh, there is a lot of laughter in it. There is a lot of light in this very dark dystopian mother and child at each other, life or death, government is about to kill us, dense peace. There's a lot of light. There's a lot of moments of levity and humor um, because that's what we are as human beings. Think about it. How often in funerals or or somebody's dying or even in a, in a in New York, in a violent situation outside, all of a sudden people are laughing or there's something happens that just sets you off because that's who we are as human beings. Mm -hmm. uh, the comedy and the tragedy and the tragedy and the comedy, right? Exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's I, that's totally the answer I was expecting. That's why I asked it. But it uh, always throws people because it's always kind of like, wait a minute, they're smoking a joint? What the hell? <laughs> you know? And say, well, yeah, you know, I don't want to reveal too much in case somebody sees a production someday, but there's things going on with her that justify what's going on. And this is life or death. And why, why not? Why the hell not? Are they going to share this moment? Um, and it brings them closer. I know a joint brings a mother and child closer. Yes, it does. <laughs> yeah, I and I, I think people sort of forget. <laughs> I think people forget that uh, like these great tragedies of Shakespeare, like Macbeth and Hamlet, all are hilarious too. Hilarious. Like they have these moments of great comedy. And so I think people sometimes really want to write this really, and I think it goes along with that activist play thing where it's like we need to let people know the severity of the situation yeah. but right with that severity comes this levity at the same time because we need that to cope with it and so Absolutely. that if your play is being realistic in that sense it should have that part of it as well i mean call it coping i call it human to me it's, <laughs> it's, we are human i mean one moment i'm really pissed off and then the next moment i'm laughing my ass off and then both are happening at the same time Mm -hmm. Because that is how who we are as human beings. So yeah. to me, it's not even introducing it to the audience as a way for them to cope with this heavy subject. Uh, but it's more it's more about no, this is the truth of who we are. I I'm sort of wondering, is this play um like a lot of the other things that you've written, or do you find yourself bouncing around a lot while you write to different genres and different styles and things like that? A good question. This one was a little bit sort of a departure. It's it's it, 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 in terms of my other work. Yes, I've played a little bit with um, uh, maybe dramatic structure to a certain extent, but it stayed pretty much in the traditional. And so does Bloom, I guess. But Bloom is a little bit more experimental. Bloom is a little bit more heavy and dark. Um, um, in that all of a sudden now I'm introducing the government and politics and and blood and choking and that's sort of um, Sam Shepard. <laughs> you know, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was reading it's it. It's more of like, a Sam Shepard. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's more in the Sam Shepard world, I would say, um, than my other work, uh, which tends to fall more in the full on dramedy. So if you if you know my other work, and, and and typically my other work is clearly bilingual, clearly, you know, the Dominican experience and Dominican American experience is present. Um, in this one, there is no there is no sort of magnification of that. There is no sort of focus on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is no sort of idea that we're moving in in what I typically explore in my other plays, which has more to do with identity, um, the diaspora experience, um, their Dominican public versus the United States, <clears throat> those who come here, those who go there. It's this one is more laser focused uh, on a particular in particular, two particular individuals. And it also, I'm playing with, uh, in this one, which I don't do with my other plays, it's in real time. It's shared in real time. So you're experiencing this in real time. Um, it is also a one act. It's a 90 minute, 85 minute one act. My other mm-hmm. plays are two acts. Um, it's only two characters. I've never written a play, a play. I'm not talking about monologues and scenes. I've never written a full length play with two people. So I was kind of playing a little bit more and, and moving into a heavier, darker, avant-garde area uh, that I hadn't before in my other work. Like I said, I, I totally touched on the t- the Sam Shepard while I was reading. Yeah. I was like, yeah, this feels very Sam Shepardy, And in that way, it also plays a lot, I think, with the rhythm yes. of the dialogue, right, where you have this um, you have this dialogue that's oftentimes not complete and not Mm -hmm. very clear and Mm -hmm. even then i think the most beautiful moments to me are when it gets escalated and they're sort of screaming at each other Mm -hmm. because there's this sort of word association poetry to it Mm -hmm. where they're both really at their wits end like trying to communicate Mm -hmm. to the other person when the other person isn't really fully comprehending what they're saying and so you get this like shouting match that's very staccato and very rhythmic and poetic that brings a lot of beauty to those strenuous moments well funny that you mentioned that well n- number one and but still keeping it accessible not mm-hmm. going way off into experimental land where you're right. like what the hell is going on um because uh, i believe in accessibility for theater i want to take my mother who has, doesn't really go to the theater and then that yale grad or that you know minnesota wherever the university you went to grad um, and I want them all to sit with me and thoroughly enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Um, even if you got more than my mom or my mom got things that you didn't get, but we all enjoyed it. For me, it's about accessibility. The funny that you mentioned words like staccato and rhythm. I studied music when I was in high school. I went to the high school performing arts in New York. You might not know this, but for those of us who are old enough, the fame school. And I studied music. I've been, I studied theory, rhythm, music, that kind of thing. And so a lot of my work, I usually look at as composing, Um, but I also am very particular. I'm an only child, so I grew up observing quite a bit and and growing up as a latchkey kid and an only child after I came back from the Dominican Republic. um, There was, and in a very tiny setting, there was a lot of me observing human behavior and language, being bilingual um, and being, and developing a a very uh, intuition and, and a lot of um, empathic qualities because all I had was my world, you know, mm-hmm. being, being alone at home all the time 
not having a bedroom. My bedroom was my bathroom. Um, so that's part of it. And then studying music, all of that put together creates a sense of looking at, at playwriting sort of as a composition. Um, and then being studying comedy and being naturally uh, comfortable in comedy, comedy is all about rhythm, right? Set up, set up, joke, set up, set up, joke, and flow, 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 stop. And there's a lot of sort of musical rhythmic qualities to comedy. So all of that combined influences the way I write. But oftentimes I'll hear it in my head or I'll say it out loud as I'm writing. So that I'm, I, and then of course, when I'm in a room read and people are reading the work, that's when the real work and the real fun <laughs> begins because now I'm listening to how others are interpreting it and I have to refine the composition. You know what I mean? Right. Stream of consciousness are very yeah. realistic, right? To the messiness of language where I think this one is still messy, yeah. but it is composed, right? Yes. Like you said, it's not very, like it's not all these people talking at once. Right. Uh, it's very back and forth, but it is a two person play and so that's how it would typically be right <laughs> yeah correct correct when I do work when I have other characters when I do write plays where I have other characters like my adaptation of the brief wondrous life of Oscar Wow which is still running off Broadway um there there you have scenes where you have five six seven characters and that's a whole different type of composition yeah. right um um an, an orchestra versus a three-piece right mm -hmm. versus chamber music so to speak negative space i think like these characters are interacting and it is mostly just their voices mm -hmm. i think you get this like i think if you did produce it with some sort of underscoring or uh extra musical cues or things like that it would sort of negate the very personal and human connection to it because it it's just it has to be kind of that very real thing it kind of reminded me of like the scenes from the marriage story that netflix uh -huh. movie right where it's like you get these moments of just like in silence an argument and you actually get to listen to it rather than have something making you feel a certain way while you're watching yes it. yes absolutely mm -hmm. uh, one of the bigger influences in this sort of two-person thing besides sam shepherd's true west um was also night mother by Marsha norman i believe um, which also takes place in real time. True West doesn't, but, um, or sort of. It jumps after between Act 1 and Act 2, but um, Night Mother, where this woman decides she's going to take her life. And so she's like, Mom, you're here. I'm in about 90 minutes. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going about, I'm about to take my life. And then the play is about how, for Mom, it's how can I save my child? And the daughter, it's more about, I have resolved that this is all I can do and I'm comfortable with it. I need to convince you to be okay with it because you're my mother. Mm -hmm. um, so, and that takes place in real time. So sort of that two person back and forth between those two female characters and then the two brothers in um, True West certainly were an influence. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised I didn't pick up on the, like the, now that you say the night mother connection, it does, I go, oh yeah, this is very, again, it's a relationship between a child and a parent, which is- yeah. Yeah. Right. We've seen it's not as if there's not enough examples of it, but they're all right. over the place. You could connect right. this play to all other sorts of media and right. material. And uh, so Night I Mother, think Night Mother is more in the realistic realm. Not right. that it's always bloomed to a certain extent, but, you know, my, Night Mother doesn't take place in a dystopian mm -hmm. uh, a future with a totalitarian regime. Um, the dystopian future and the totalitarian regime is the mother and the daughter. Um, and you can have the same argument for uh, Bloom, 
it's a it's a bit I would say night, but but nevertheless it influenced it. But I would say Night Mother is a little bit more grounded in the naturalistic psychic qualities of uh, 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 the psychic na qualities of naturalism, mm -hmm. sort of the energy, whereas Bloom is a bit more bombastic, a bit more sort of jumping off mountains, so to speak. Well, and I believe there was like a, there was even an interview that Marsha Norman did where she was talking about how someone was doing a production of Night Mother and they tried to make it more magical, realistic. Oh, and no. and she pulled the rights because she was like, you clearly don't understand like how this play is functional. And like when she went to go see it to like give her uh, consent to do it, mm -hmm. she was like, you're, it's like, it's kind of missing the point. It's not representing the actual struggles of the play accurately because now it's at, it has this layer of unreality to it. Ooh, Daniel, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah. um, where the playwright goes and sees the production and they are imposing. Okay, one thing is interpretation and the other thing is just what planet are you on? You know, it's like you're in a completely different planet. It's, it, the text, the text, text, it's all there. Listen to it, pay attention to it. Don't try to, to impose on it. it. You know, playwrights, we work years on this stuff. Um, so trust it. I mean, one thing is sort of maybe adding a little here, a little something, but not if it's not in the play. I, girl, Daniel, I have been to productions of my work where it's like, why are you all of a sudden adding interpretive dancing? What the hell? There's no interpretive dancing in this naturalistic play. So but that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> that's so, yeah. a whole other thing. Yeah. Yeah. I would say uh, it's I would all, like my rule is always why would you ever add extra time to a play? Like if uh, if it's if. The page number is usually about a minute per page. You'd never want to add extra time. If anything, you should be trying to make it slightly shorter because that's generally like uh, maybe everything's a little bit over long sometimes. So it's always best to err on the side of make it a little bit more brief. But it's like when I see somebody who adds like extra musical like numbers into a straight In play. Interludes like, or like why? Like, look, we understand that the arts, um, you know, generalizing. It, it's a collaborative process. Okay, rah, rah, yay, yay. But, you know, the writer is the writer. And also often we get the shaft and it's kind of like, well, we are the ones who are birthing these babies. So could you please respect them? <laughs> um, we can work together. If you have an idea or a thought, come to me. Mm -hmm. Anyway, let's move on. Anyways, <laughs> exactly let's move on from that. Uh, so when you're actually writing, uh, how would you describe your process in going about writing? Like, do you have a set uh schedule or things like that no, or do you approach no. things differently with every project it's so non-traditional it's so like if see people people always call, accuse me of being a workaholic and i'm like well i love what i do so that already doesn't make me a workaholic but number two if you observed how i work you'd be like oh you really okay you okay i was wrong because <laughs> i take a lot of breaks a lot of breaks a lot of youtube watching stupid cats doing stupid things breaks um, standing up, walking, playing with my dog, with my kitty cat, a lot of breaks. Um, that's just the way I work. And some, some it, it, projects differ. Sometimes you'll sit a day, you'll sit and you'll just work and you're like, what, what happened? Six hours just went by and I didn't, you just lose time. And some days, most days, I take a lot of breaks. Um, so it's a very, there are many writers who work at a set time, set number of days, this is how they do it. They When they start writing, they don't stop. And that works for them. Uh, and I won't say that that's not where I, I my, my process will evolve to, perhaps. 
But in the in the years up until now, um, I take a lot of breaks. Talking to more writers, I think the really set rote schedule is more oftentimes the exception uh, and not necessarily the rule. Because I think, right, when you're working in a creative field, yeah. your schedule mm-hmm. is so very rarely like set it's not a nine to five right so you have to leave if you're a freelancer (laughs) right you have to fit you have to fit your creative sessions into this ever-evolving schedule and so i think you have to have a little bit of a flexibility to that and even then i think a lot of writers and i've experienced this too where you like are only ever really super creative at like the wrong times so Mm -hmm. like i would be sitting in class in my undergrad and i'd be like oh man i have a really good poem idea and i'd have a little book with me so i could quick write it down but and then when I would actually want to sit down and write something, I'd be like, oh, man, I don't have any good ideas. It's only when you least expect it for me, at least. And it can be hard to tap into that when you're just like in a blank room, like I'm ready to work. Yeah, I mean, it's about for me, my best ideas come when come to me in the in the shower and on the toilet. <laughs> so what do I always have right by me? My phone, because my phone has a little notes, the little notes app. And for me, particularly, I don't know for everybody else, what works is if something comes to me and I'm like, this is really good, I'll either record it in a memo on my phone saying, hey, blah, 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 or I'll type it up in my notes app. Um, And that would be the sort of trigger for me to set off on whatever it is that that set off, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So, or if I'm walking on the street, an idea will come to me, I'll whip out the phone and record it on my memo, or I'll type it up in my notes app. And it can just be blue giraffes crossing the street. Uh, and that will trigger the memory and, and the emotion connected to that moment mm-hmm. so that I can write what, whatever that I was going to write with a monologue or that particular scene. Inspiration is always accessible. We get in the way of it, mm-hmm. you know, by censoring, by allowing distraction to take over. So having something that I can access very quickly, like my phone, in this crazy world where I can record something or really type something up brief, not going nuts, um, is enough for me particularly. It may not be for other writers so that I can go back to it. Um, I have files on my phone, notes, files uh, of ideas from years ago and I and they're still there waiting. Um, mm-hmm. And I'll go and look at them and I go, that was, that's really good. That's, I'm gonna write that. It's just all in, all in due time. So often we wanna write everything at once Right. Um, and that's the other thing uh, that will distract us or will judge the idea, will judge the feeling and the thought. Um, well, someone so already did that. Oh, that's already been done. No, it hasn't. You haven't done it. You, Daniel, you are the one that's going to make this interesting. So there were 10 other plays or 10 other movies about volcanoes. But what is Daniel going to say about it? What is your voice, your authentic voice saying about that volcano? How are you going to approach that story? And you go, well, there's this one thing. Um, And you type it up or you record it in your memo if you are in a situation where you're not able to access the writing right away. So it's this idea of not making it so mysterious, not making it so personal. Making it personal, yes. Not making it so personal when it comes to the, the inspiration that's coming to you. Not making it because then you're, what I mean by that is not judging it, right? Being open and being flexible. And if you're on the toilet and you get an idea, have the phone nearby. I think sometimes it can also be daunting to like have that disorganized pile of ideas, but then it's a little bit like, well, now you just have a basket to pull from. Like you don't need to 
you don't need to organize exactly. it, right? You can just kind of grab one thing and that might fuel something in your sort of improvisational writing, right? Like you just pick it up and go. It doesn't have to um, be- Of the 10 ideas the, that you wrote, three of those will end up in this play with that character, that character, and that character, and that moment. And then the other ones might end up in other scripts, in a screenplay or a TV movie or television pilot or, or not at all. But the, uh, the idea is to honor it by just uh, acknowledging it. And the thing about a lot of people get inspiration in their showers and on the toilet um, and taking walks is because often that's when we are most disarmed. That's when we are not so much in our heads, right? Uh, and we're doing sort of a mundane thing, going to the toilet, taking a shower, taking a walk. And our brain is going, ah, watching a stupid cat video, mm -hmm. right? It's relaxed. It's not going, we must do this and it must be good. It's just kind of going, oh, we're relaxed right now and it's nice. So here you go. <laughs> right? We're disarmed. Yeah. I, you know, and it can be, it can be hard getting to that place sometimes, right? Like, because like when you're in that moment, when you're like, I need to write, it'll be like, right, you want to get to that place, but it can be difficult. So I really- Because our business is all about deadlines. Um, right. and, and our business and show business is all about deadlines and results. So you got this one thing out and already people are like, what's your next thing? What's your next thing? What's your next thing? It's always, it's always about moving on. Um, so it, it can be a challenge, but it's not impossible if you have an awareness of, okay, what you break walking away from it, walking mm -hmm. away from something for a few minutes or even for a little bit of time or sometimes even months if you have that kind of advantage um, can be freeing and liberating. And most folks will tell you, no, stick with it. You know, Hulk loved to write. You know, it's it's like, <laughs> it's sort of like you want to stay in it and stay in it. I find when I take a moment away from it, sometimes two moments, sometimes a week, sometimes a month or two um, or three, um, it can bring, it, it brings a sense of perspective and freshness that is going to serve the story better. But we don't always have that advantage. We don't always have that, you know, with, with deadlines and and the industry the way it is. It's like now, 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 now. So there is a sense of having to also learn how to work under that kind of pressure and still being able to be productive, you know, mm -hmm. and creative. Yeah, I, it's kind of, I think it's a, for me, sometimes it's a matter of how do I prepare myself to be ready for it when it happens, right? Like, how do I set myself, like, like you said, right? You have like the notes app on your phone. You have all these things at your disposal so that if it hits, you can take care of it, right? And you don't lose it. Um, but I. Well, that's why in, in writing school, um, tech, uh, the, the technique is more outlines and beat sheets and um, uh, really uh, well, in television, you do a series overview sheets and um, you do outlines and beat sheets and all kinds of, I forget what the new one is, a new term, I, I can't even remember. I was like, what? The, um, uh, it's sort of the back end, the, not the, sort of the, 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 the work that prior to you even writing dialogue, which is messy and frustrating and annoying. Um, but it is the building of, the map of, of your body, mm -hmm. of what you're going to write. And that's why in writing school, they are so on top of us to uh, really fall in love with outlining. 
Um, it's not my favorite thing. Um, and beat sheets. And um, for plays, particularly, making sure you have clear idea of, of, of the beginning, middle, and an end of your play. Um, that's more study. That's more in the study department. That's more to prepare so that when you are at in front of that first line of dialogue, it can flow quicker and better. That's what that background work does. It's not my favorite thing. <laughs> not gonna lie. Um, but it, but but the opposite of that is can be quite quite maddening it, um, if you don't have a sense of you have a deadline and you are adapting this novel and it ha you, they need a first draft by such and such date. So speeding you up will entail a strong outline that's gonna be messy and crappy for a while. And also defining what the beginning, middle and end of your play is, um, key pivotal moments in your play, um, what are the turning points of your play? Stuff like that, that's gonna be tedious work that I detest. But if you are in a position where you are being hired and being paid for and there are deadlines involved, we'll speed you up. Not yeah. the most fun, I'm telling you, it's not fun, <laughs> um, but it will speed you up. Right. Uh, so sort of switching gears a little bit, when you're actually writing uh, and you are sort of at, the, you have a nice first draft. I mean, it's probably not nice, but it's a first draft. First and then draft. you have a second draft, you have a third draft. Uh, who do you seek out when you want to start refining that? Like whose opinion do you look for when you're trying to uh, refine a draft? Well, first of all, by the time, if you if I'm sending it to you, Daniel, by the time you get the first draft, it's really the 100th draft. <laughs> um, me personally. Right. Um, and I think for the majority of writers. Um, second, uh, just seek out the folks that you trust, that you know are going to give you an unbiased, um, constructive um, opinion, not not going to be competing with you, not going to be attacking, um, asking those folks that are around you, mentors, close friends, that are going to ask the right questions. And that's trial and error. Um, you know, that's sort of, I have a couple of people in my life that I always share my work with, uh, and some of them are not even in the theater. Mm -hmm. That's important to me. Because I can send it to you, Daniel. You're well read in the theater. You'll give me your fabulous questions because I trust you. Um, and you also bring up some thoughts. You won't try to write the play for me. You won't try to impose what you think the play should be. Mm -hmm. That's tricky. It is. Um, even if I love you and I trust you, you may trying to be put your play into my play. And so as a, as a writer, I have to decipher intuitively what I... In, from your notes, right? What I'm going to take and what I'm not going to take because this note makes sense for that. But these other five, that's not my play. This is somebody else's work or perhaps this is his work. So that's a tricky thing to navigate as well. But the mentors and the friends, oh, so, and also the importance of having people to read your work that are perhaps not writers, that are just folks. And I have those in my life that I always send my plays to because they just can tell me honestly, like they went to see a movie. Um, I was confused by that and that and blah, 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 blah. And it won't be this analytical thing. You know, well, blah, 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 blah. it right. will be, um, what was this about? And what happened over there? I did this with Bloom quite a bit. I was sending it out to folks who are not necessarily in the theater business um, to make sure that the story was clear. 
um, that because through the knife throwing and blood people and <laughs> people dying and violence, I it was important to me that the humanity was still there, mm-hmm. not not the cerebralness of it, but the heart of it. There are people in my life who speak from their heart, who are just humans in my life, good humans. And when they read it, even if they just, it's not a movie, but so what? They're reading this piece and they can give me good, strong, um, constructive human feedback about what they're experiencing when they read it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I think that's how you make theater more accessible. Yes. Right. If we if we only if we only like have a cohort of theater makers who go and see productions and we're very heady about everything and it's like, ah, oh, wow, this is brilliant and this is ah, oh, this is first rate. It's fantastic. We're not gonna get everyone to come join us in this communal thing. And so we need opinions from people who we want to bring into the theater, right? I mean, I don't know about you, Daniel, but when I go to the theater, I want to feel, I want to think, I want to, mm-hmm. I want to experience. This is my own personal opinion. Um, I'm assuming most people who go to the theater or a movie, that's what they want to. They're seeking an escape, but they're also seeking a feeling, an experience, mm-hmm. a thought, a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's what we do as artists. And I want to experience that when I go see a piece, not seeing a three and a half hour, Lord, <laughs> um, play, play where I'm like, okay, I'm completely disconnected. I you just presented some wonderful, not so wonderful ideas, but what are you trying to really share with us here? Mm-hmm. Not just say, share. What are you trying to share? I'm here. I'm the audience. Can you invite me to the party? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I and I think the most the most important thing to me is like having a is I really love the communal aspect of it. And like you mentioned, like a question or a discussion, right? It's like what even just slightly beyond did you or did you not like the play? What did you think of this? Like what it like having people leave the play and go, well, I really agree with the mother in Bloom. Oh, well, I really agree with the son. Right. And then that can actually have then you can actively reflect with other people after that moment. And that only happens if you have a human connection. My favorite thing is to go to the theater with folks who don't normally go to the theater. Now, mind you, there's always sort of a protocol <laughs> that, you know, you have to kind of explain, um, but, you know, you're not watching TV, so you can't be talking back and, you know, that kind of thing. And, but even sometimes that's just what Shakespeare's audiences did. Yeah. It was he wrote these plays in the court, but honestly, he was writing for the people, mm-hmm. and so people would constantly tuck back and cheer and scream back at the actors. So even so, I'm kind of like, well, I just want them to have that ex- and, and the experience. Period. Um, and so I enjoy going with folks who don't normally go to the theater, uh, who aren't your average theater goer, uh, and they and they often have really strong opinions. Uh, about what they just experienced and and ask the really amazing questions you might not get from the intelligentsia, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and even my, I, that's why I'm really grateful for my partner when we go and see shows is she's very, she's very, <laughs> she's very aggressively opinionated about theater. And so we have a lot, or even when we go see movies, like we have a lot of, whenever we go see a movie, we'll listen to something on the way there. But when we're in the car afterwards, we never turn something on because for that like 20 to 30 minute ride, we just Mm -hmm. talk about what we just saw and we process it together. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's, I think trying to foster that sort of experience is what I'm really interested in, in all facets of theater, right? You want to have 
I because I think that's also where people will remember it and it will stick with people is if they actually yes. talk about it. If you just go, you experience something and then you sort of let it dissipate. Yeah, it kind of disappears. But I think if you process it with someone actively afterwards, it really stays with you. It does. And for me, it's important to make, as we've said the word a million times already, accessible, mm-hmm. um, not so elitist, uh, because that's what Shakespeare did. He, he invited the queen, but he also invited the, the bum that was a, a drunk from the street <laughs> um, um, into, his, into these worlds, you see. Um, and so he had all of that in his plays, um, from the crass, crude humor to the most sophisticated. And that's kind of what I like to do in my work as well. Um, some I feel like sometimes in our industry, because you know, you'll see you'll oh the award-winning, Pulitzer Prize winning, Tony Award winning play, and then you go and I'm like, okay, if you studied the philosophy of Socrates and AD, it's like to me, it becomes so so dense in I in, in thought that it becomes inaccessible. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's certainly for the well-read critic, a masterpiece. Not to take away from that, but it's just I'm interested in something else. Right, mm-hmm. right, like that. Like those plays still have their value, but of course, let's. I'm I'm still a big fan of let's make something everybody can come see and engage in with each other, rather than right have some people be confused and lost. Yeah, you just spoke about your production of Much Ado About Nothing. Yeah what you were sharing with me, I think before, but um, right. you were sharing how you wanted to make it accessible, that it wasn't just, we're doing Shakespeare. It was a little bit more um, pared down, sort of kind of bare bones of uh, and not showing you the whole four hour epic, uh, really focusing it and making it about the story, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of my biggest process going through that was actually going through the script, basically finding every single joke and then reading every joke and going, is this still funny? And if it wasn't still funny and it wasn't necessary to the story, we cut it. We just said, throw it out. Because if it's not going to make people laugh in this comedy, I don't want it in there. Right. Like it's or if it doesn't have some sort of thematic through line that yeah. we can we still want in there. Right. It was a, it was still a balance. Right. I didn't just like bring scissors to the play, but it was like. If I'm not if I'm not going to make people laugh, I'm not going to make people enjoy themselves. Why would we want this? still here if it's just gonna confuse people yeah. and make it less accessible i don't really want it there well you were remembering that those specific there are certain specific references from specific time right that have to do with a specific person that he knew or that somebody in the audience would know right mm-hmm. or a situation a bochinche as we say in spanish a gossip moment that was like the rage um at the time that to us now it's like maria and john did okay um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, but like a specific obscure, like classical reference. Classical reference reads readily. Like it's like ah, this story about uh, Jupiter and Aries or whatever. Ah, yeah. Which I'm, I'm sure I'm conflating my gods right now, but uh, <laughs> it's just like oh yes, that story everyone's read, and I'm like yeah, for sure. All right, let's throw it. Um, but yeah, it's just stuff like that. I think, and I, I think that's why that's why Bloom. I think works like you've been talking about is it's these moments where it's I think everybody gets a moment to relate to right Mm -hmm. where you have Mm -hmm. even though it's this you have a moment where a mother and a child share a joint it's still like I think people have sort of thought about that before like Mm -hmm. what would it be like to do that with your parents and you're like 
well, here you go. Here's what it would be like, right? And then you have these other moments too, where you you give someone a moment to connect to, mm-hmm. uh, and it's still very accessible in that way. And so mm-hmm. I really appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, and so just kind of closing up uh, this interview, talking about uh, just some closing questions. I'm always curious, are there any plays or playwrights that you think everyone has to read? Not like as like, this is the canon, but like, uh, personally, this is very significant to me and I want to share it with someone else. Oh, gosh, there are several. Um, the ones who influenced me um, were Henry Gibson, Tennessee Williams, Anton Chekhov, um, who wrote comedies. People always... Yep. So many productions, so many productions of his yep. work. It's always about not comedy. I'm like, guys, he was a comedic writer. Um, early Jose Rivera's work, um, Cloud Tectonics, The House of Ramon Iglesias, those plays. And then you have uh I can go on and on. But then you have um recent playwrights that I just absolutely adore. Dominique Marceau. Um, she's fabulous. Um, and uh there's a play that she wrote called called Paradise Blue that is freaking genius. And um, even, God help me, Bruce Norris, who wrote Downstate. Yep. Now I want to read more of his work. I, um, so those kinds of playwrights that keep it grounded in truth, but also sometimes play a little bit with structure um, and definitely are not afraid of provocative topics. Yeah. Um, um, those are the ones that I absolutely adore. Uh, Ricardo Perez Gonzalez, who is a fabulous, I believe he's Cuban, uh, you got to look him up. He's fabulous. Um, he's written a bunch of plays, but there's a play with the word mango in it that I absolutely love. I think it's, I forget what it's called, but it's something with mango in it. Um, but Ricardo, Ricardo's fabulous. Yep. I, I have been uh, trying to find more like Latin American playwrights because I think that's a, that's a blind spot for me. Um, I haven't, well, I haven't, I, so I'm, I'm dipping into that right now. I'm reading more and I'm getting more plays by playwrights from uh, that community. Yes, there is a, a growing community, particularly, thank God, finally, of young Dominican writers come up and coming um, in both the TV, film, and particularly in the theater industry, which means eventually we'll have even more TV and film. Right. Because, uh, you know, as playwrights, we always end up doing TV and film, not always, but mostly. You have Christine Eve Cato, C-A-T-O, who has a play called um, Sancocho, which is a Dominican hen soup, um, opening off Broadway next year um, over at the Women's Project. Um, And then you have Guaraliste del Carmen, who is a Dominican, very up and coming Dominican playwright, who has a play called um, Bees and Honey that is premiering at M, as in Marco, C-C, Cat Cat, M-C-C, at uh, the MCC Theater Off-Broadway next spring. It's wonderful to see a lot of uh, Caribbean and Caribbean American playwrights that are on the rise. Cause for a while there, it was just like, woo, echo, echo. <laughs> and I have several stuff out there that are sort of out in the ether that are Dominican and Dominican American, contemporary Dominican American plays, both in English and in Spanish. <laughs> um, anyhow, so those are some of the playwrights. Uh, there's Carmen Rivera. Carmen Rivera wrote a play called La Gringa, which has been running off-Broadway in Spanish for 26, 27, almost 30 years. Wow. It's the longest running play off-Broadway and specifically in Spanish. Um, And that's Carmen Rivera's La Gringa. And then there's Candido Tirado. Candido Tirado is another wonderful Puerto Rican playwright. Uh, One of my favorite plays that he wrote called Fishman, 
Daniel, you need to read that one. I think you'd actually love it. It's called Fishman, Candido Tirado. Candido is C-A-N-D-I-D-O and Tirado. <laughs> Tom, <laughs> Tom, Irma, Rodriguez, Apple, Dominic, Omar. So Tirado. Mm -hmm. uh, Fishman, and that one is published, so you can, I believe you can order on Amazon. Fabulous play that I think you'd actually really enjoy. Well, I'll have to check it out. I'm super excited. Mm -hmm. I always, like, I think, I think it's like the, everybody asks for recommendations sometimes, and then people wonder if they actually go through with it. I, like, every time I get a play recommendation, it does go onto a, a bookseller wish list, but I eventually get to it, and then I yes. get it and put it on my shelf, and I read it, uh, and I hold on to it. I love, I love holding on to plays so I can share them with others when they need it. All right, so just wrapping it up, uh, where can people find your work, Marco? My several of my plays are on Amazon.com, uh, and on Lulu.com, L-U-L-U.com. Lulu.com is much better with than with getting it out to you than Amazon. Go figure, but they are co sister companies, or something mm -hmm. like that. But so my play, Ashes of Light, Barcelona on the Rocks, both have been published in bilingual editions, um, and they are available on Amazon.com. And then you can visit my website. Marco Antonio Rodriguez, that's Rodriguez with a Z as a zebra. Um, MarcoAntonioRodriguez.com to see all my stuff. There's all kinds of stuff up there. Um, the stuff that's coming, the stuff that's already been done. Right now, I have a play, a stage adaptation of The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, uh, the Pulitzer Prize winning novel. I adapted it for the stage by Juno Diaz at the repertory, the Spanish Repertory Theater Off-Broadway. It's now been running three years Off-Broadway wow. and has now been extended again until May. It's running in rep. And what that means is, Daniel, you'll know, um, is that it doesn't run every single weekend. So you'll have to go on the calendar to just look up The Brief One, Just Life of Oscar Wilde in New York City Off-Broadway, and it'll come up to check it out. It's 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 been great. It's been three years and counting. So it's been fabulous. Well, then I hope if anybody who listens to this hasn't seen it that they get to go out and see it because it sounds like get right? to go. it's and still listen, running it's in spanish but the subtitles are projected on onto the set so i made we made it part of the set so it flows seamlessly you watching the action and if you're not a, a fluent spanish speaker or even if you are a fluent spanish speaker because it is dominican spanish so it can get a little bit tricky mm -hmm. um you can easily move back and forth between the screen and what's going on in front of you awesome well Thank you so much, Marco. Uh, I really, really love talking to you. This has been fantastic. Uh, and I can't wait to see what sort of work gets produced to yours next. I really hope more of it does because I think you're a fantastic some, there's writer. There's some stuff in the works. There's some stuff in the works. Um, sometimes I can't, some things I just can't announce yet. Um, uh, Bloom is getting another production. And that's all I can say. Um, <laughs> and then there is another, because it had an, its original production in New York at Iati mm -hmm. Theater. Um, and then there's other stuff I always have my hands in several different pots and pans. So there's some other stuff in the in the works for next year, knock on wood. Well, perfect. Well, yeah, there's there's always more projects. Everybody always has more projects. So that's especially when you're a freelancer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. All our music was written, performed, and recorded by Devin Wessels. Our graphic design is done by Lucas Minarchik. And next time we're gonna be talking with Charlie O'Leary about his play Effective. And be sure to support your local theater. They're doing great work. See you next time.